This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And our editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Please, not so loud. I'm still recovering from Purim. Is this still Purim? Can we still talk about it? It's Purim somewhere. (laughs) Today on the show, our Jew of the Week is Israeli writer and activist Hen Mazig. He's known for his work on social media combating anti-Semitism, and he has a new book out. He joined us to talk about it. It's uh, called The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto. I will be the first to say I don't think he's the wrong kind of Jew. The exact right kind. I think, think honestly, he was probably the first to say that, but okay. And Gentile of the Week is my old buddy Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, a Roman Catholic scholar of Islam. He teaches at Notre Dame. He probably knows more about Islam than any other Catholic alive. It's almost Easter season, Stephanie. (laughs) How is Easter season in New Jersey? So last I reported from the hallowed halls of the Short Hills Mall, uh, one of my favorite places on earth. And thank God I married into a New Jersey family that loves to take me to the mall. Short Hills royalty. Exactly. Exactly. The Coen's have good mall game. Uh, Oh, amazing. (laughs) Amazing. It's incredible. We love it there. This was what sparked that big conversation about Christmas photos Mm -hmm. because I saw Santa And the mall, the whole thing, the people, the elves, the photographers, I got totally schooled for not not realizing what a production this was. I think people are still writing in to to correct me. Anyway, we went there this weekend. And what I saw was that in that same same atria. Santa's court, if you will. Yeah, Santa's court has been transformed into a... A bunny topiary. And uh, (laughs) seriously, there's a photo. Um, A a terrarium, if you will. And sitting there, surrounded by photographers and just waiting for people to arrive for photos. All by his lonesome. The saddest looking Easter bunny I have ever seen. Easter. It was like March 10th. We had just finished Purim. And they were like, all right, Purim's over. Let's get that Easter bunny in. And Wait, Easter photos. Can we back at up a second? I think this might be a case of you you having grown up in the Jew bubble. You take I've it for heard granted. of Easter. You, no, you've heard of Easter. I was a religion major. But you took it for granted that that Santa's court it, at some point gets transformed into the bunny court. I've never heard of a mall Easter bunny. Who sits on Easter bunny's lap? That's not even a thing. I don't want to step in it again. Quinn, as a former Gentile who grew up in the Midwest, if any, if there was ever a mall with an Easter bunny, it it's, was the mall yeah, in Ohio. Yeah, in Columbus. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I have. We're <laughs> confirming. <laughs> Please get those photos. So, I mean, honestly, Lisa probably has photos of the Easter bunny because Delaware definitely has Josh Easter Cross bunny is raising mall. his hand saying, yep, I've, okay, I've, I've sat on it. So, so we need you to... and I don't know. So here's the thing. I'm just going to say at the Enfield Mall in Enfield, Connecticut, or the Holyoke Mall, my no. two malls, there was no Easter Bunny. Separation of, 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 of Bunny and <laughs> yeah. State. And yeah. Billabong. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the thing that I'm going to have to deal with is that Edith loves bunnies. Well, who, and does, so who doesn't? she still likes to look at the photo that I took to, to share with you all. And she likes to say, bunny, bunny. And she noticed, actually, that the topiaries, is that the right word for it's those like fancy? Yeah, it's like yeah. a fancy yeah. hedge. It's a bunny hedge. So this morning, she <laughs> all she wanted to do was look at the bunny picture. And I was like, do I need to get a photo of my daughter with the Easter Bunny? You do not. And... But it's not Santa. Like, to me, it's, <laughs> I understand that it's far more religious in some sense but as it's Easter, but less. it's so far removed that I'm like, it's just a bunny. It's just, can, can we get a photo with the bunny? I think if you want to cleanse Edith of this, be like, you know, he died a horrible death in the pot, right? <laughs> <laughs> the you know, bunny or little, Jesus? His little paws. Oh, the bunny. The bunny. The bunny died right a horrible death. Do you guys know, by the way, that I had bunnies when I was young? Have I told you the bunny story? No. Yeah. So my brother wanted two bunnies. I, I did too, before I went kosher. And they <laughs> so never connected with my, my brother wanted 
bunnies. And for some reason, my parents got a male and a female bunny. Oh, that was a good idea. And my grandfather, the carpenter, built a, a hutch out back and they lived out back. And then is one this day- Is a story about Jesus or is no, this a story No, and then one family? day we had like 16 bunnies because they had dug a hole underground, spawned. No. Had they, and one day, like we had our two normal bunnies and 14 little tiny bunnies being nursed at the teats of our normal bunny. And then my brother, who was maybe 10, said, yeah, I'm out. I don't want to care for these bunnies anymore. So it fell to responsible older brother. And for about a year- I cared for these bunnies. To feed them to, to the neighborhood. And, a bunny. and we won't talk duck. about how we wound down that episode in our lives. But um, don't get Edith bunnies. My point is no bunnies for <laughs> See, Edith. So, so this is where I feel one occasion where I feel particularly blessed uh, because my children never connected with the Easter bunny, who they knew from malls uh, in, in, the, in the near vicinity. <laughs> that, that king of Prussia. Uh, but they were very, Rosa very Fields. interested in, in Christian iconography because <laughs> when we were... As one is. You know, when they were young, we would spend a lot of time running around. At the cloisters at, looking at, at saints. Either the cloisters or, or the Met, which is, you know, for, for New York parents, if you want like a space to pass a rainy afternoon, this is a pretty great, you know, backyard to have. And they asked a lot of questions, especially, you know, Lily when she was young. It's like, okay, so what am I looking at? Why is there blood? Like this whole thing. And one day, I will never forget this. We were about to go out uh, this was Pete Covert. She was very young. And a sitter comes uh, who was, you know, a pretty devout Catholic. She had like a, a crucifix. And she was telling Lily about Easter coming on and and Christ. And Lily looks and says like, oh, Jesus, they nailed him. <laughs> and the sitter was like, what? It's like, yeah, they nailed him. And they looked at us. The sitter looked at us like, what, what are, you, are you Jews teaching <laughs> your Jew child? It's like, you know. She's like, they. They. Right. What do you mean, they? You know where I don't think they have a mall Easter bunny? Where? Miami Beach, where I was over the past weekend. No shops at Bell Harbor uh, uh, Easter bunny? I don't think the shops at Bell Harbor has an Easter bunny. I could be wrong. I was the Arnie and Donna Blaustein visiting scholar in residence at Temple Beth Sholem in Miami Beach. And what a time it was. This This is a major and important and awesome uh, Reform Temple in Miami Beach. And I had such a good time. But the good time, as good as it was at the temple where I had the, these wonderful, attentive children, adults, audiences, there were the bagels were good. The coffee was good. The questions were good. Bagels, coffee, and questions. The day before it all started, I was down there. I was having coffee at Zach the Baker. Does anyone, oh, you know you Zach went? the Baker? Yes, yeah, I've so, always wanted to go. So Zach the Baker is the Jewish kosher, Instagram celeb. Yeah, Zach the Baker is the... the Zach uh, the Baker, by the way, sounds like the type of... Sounds mafia, like a drug dealer, mafia doesn't character <laughs> that you create when you've run out of all other nicknames. Like, we did already did Jimmy the Greek. How about... Sack the baker. Right, right, exactly. They'll make you a muffin you can't refuse. <laughs> and honestly, they talk about Zack the Baker so much. Like at Shul, one of the ways they advertised my event was, and come tomorrow for the lunch and learn, there'll be Mark Oppenheimer and pastries from Zack the Baker, which by the way is a quarter mile away. So it's not as if coming to Shul for Zack the Baker is this thing you can't otherwise get, but it just it's just an added enticement. So I'm at Zack the Baker having a, a baked good with, uh, with Mark, who's the director of engagement for TBSMB, Temple Best Shul in Miami Beach. And I'm wearing the the corduroy unorthodox hat that our colleague Tanya Singer has ordered in bulk. And uh, the waitress comes up to us and says, oh, my God, I totally love that podcast. (gasps) And I said, do you? And she goes, huh? And I said, because. And she goes, I know. It's like you looked up from the brim. (laughs) She saw under the brim. And I said. She liked what she saw. I'm the host. And she goes, 
oh my God. It wasn't quite that gushy, but she was a huge fan. She wanted me to send my love to all of you. She knew she knew Quinn. She knew Robert. She knew Josh, Stephanie, Leah, everybody. And then we talked and she said, you know, my husband and I listen to the show every week. Turns out Michelle Strick, originally of South Carolina, recent transplant to Miami Beach from Bellingham, Washington, where she was a rug weaver. But they went to Miami Beach because Greater Miami is one of the few places where you can train to be a Swatch certified uh, horologist or watch repair person. And her husband, Josh, is in the year-long Swatch Institute. That's amazing. After which he will be deployed to one of four or five different Swatch service centers around the country. And um, Michelle is there working on her art and also doing food service in the meantime. So we started talking. I invited her to uh, my programming. She came. She came Friday night. She came on Saturday. (laughs) Saturday, she brought Josh. And um, it was honestly, it was just so wonderful to to see the corduroy hat spark a new friendship with these two wonderful, bright, interesting, smart, cool Jews. A rug weaver and a horologist. Man, yeah. if, if the world ends, like, that's the couple I want to hang with. It, like, they could fix and make anything. It, it was a pretty hip thing. I was pretty intimidated, Especially because, like, it was Daylight Savings Time weekend. So right. that was probably, like, a oh really God. special Josh time. Josh would have like, here, let me do it. <laughs> they were just the best. Michelle and Josh, this show, I'm giving up this show. As the Christians, <laughs> the Christians say things like, I'm giving up such and such to God. Like, I'm giving up this LSAT to God. I'm giving up this show. <laughs> To Michelle and I think the Jews say that. Josh, do we? The LSAT. <laughs> the, L- the LSAT, right? That's the, the, LSAT that's the Jewish else. version. That's right. what we sacrifice in the, in the Beth Megdash. for you. Yeah. Hashem. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> So a little news to the Jews, uh, even in this day of diminished Hollywood Jewish presence, I still think that I th- still think Oscars are news to the Jews. Okay, wait, did you guys watch the Oscars? Absolutely not. I have Would, a 20 we... year streak going of watching no award shows and no State of the Union. Okay, so I'm addressing this to literally every other person in the world. In the world. Two yeah. of you. Um, I watched Oscars. I've only seen like I only saw Tar, but I like I like to be part of like a civic moment where like you can connect, you know, everyone's watching the same thing. At a certain point, like the president of the Academy comes out with Eva Longoria and they do this. They sort of show this video about the Academy Museum, which is just open. It's like this huge thing. And they play this video about it. And it's like, we have this and we have this. And then they show curator Dara Jaffe. And she was like, and we have an exhibit about the Jewish immigrants who helped found Hollywood. And, and Ben looked at me. He's like, what? Huh? huh? The Jews? The Jews? And so I... They got the memo. Well, not not only they got the memo, they got the memo after we had to, you know, Wait, protest. so I right. totally didn't realize right. this whole story. So I was like, oh, how funny is this? They're mentioning Jews. And so I Google it. I was like, I want to know about this. And then it turns out a year ago... Did you guys know? You guys didn't we talk about it on the show? Did we talk about it on the show? We knew. We knew from this. I thought it was so strange that I hadn't heard of this. They had the exhibit in which there were no Jews, in which Hollywood was founded by everyone. It's not. It's not just. But that that is that is a truly revolting. Leal has just removed his glasses. Just you know, he's got it to full. He's got it to full like Crossfire, William F. Buckley, Norman Pethoritz, James Baldwin. I was so excited because you know we love movies, Hollywood, magic, California, film school graduate. It's across the street from the Car Museum, which is my favorite place in Los Angeles because it's the most Los Angeles place ever. Uh, not only does it, is it, it's completely Juden, right? I mean, there's literally zero Jews mentioned right. in an industry built entirely by Jews, but there's also zero mention of movie making. It is all like, and now a floor about racism and now a gallery for me to labor relations, climate change. Like there are galleries for literally every except progressive, movies. Hot, but except for movies, like the shark from Jaws, 
Angs and like. Oh, the that atrium. was part of the video. But you like, can see the that's, shot from Jaws. That's but no about Jews. it. No just Jaws, no yeah. Jews. All virtues. It made me laugh so hard because I was like, oh my God, the reason they're saying this in the video is because when they opened, there was nothing about Jews. And now they're like creating a permanent exhibition. Because a bunch of donors are probably really angry. Literally, all the so Jewish donors. So now they're going to pander to us. But anyway, yeah. it was just so funny. And Spielberg guess, was like, how many fablements do I need to make? Okay, well, speaking of places they don't allow Jews, have a story from New London, Connecticut, not far from me. Connecticut College and the Everglades Club. Okay, I'm going to read from a couple articles that, that ran about this. Jewish students have occupied a campus building at Connecticut College because Connecticut College President Kathy Bergeron had been planning to attend a fundraiser for the college at the Everglades Club, an exclusive golf club in Palm Beach, Florida, that has a history of denying entry and membership to Jews and black people, reportedly including black Jewish entertainer Sammy Davis Jr. and cosmetics mogul Estee Lauder. Today, the club is secretive about its current membership policies, but the students were upset anyway because of its history. Now, I did a little research on this. I found a 2009 article in Broward New Times down in Broward County, Florida, that said that today, so again, 2009, club president William Panel insists the Everglades has Jewish members and has never rejected a black applicant because none has applied. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He couldn't say how many Jewish members there were because, quote, we don't ask them. Then he said, I have friends that are Jewish. I think they are Jewish, but I have no way of knowing. I've never asked. I I have no way of knowing because I I don't. Jewish. They never pick up the check at dinner, so I'm going to go probably it's, I don't know. I let my cardiologist in. Um, Okay. Then he acknowledged that members have felt the need to ask his permission to bring Jewish guests. Quote, I have so-and-so guest in my house. He's the president of some big university. He's Jewish. Can I bring him to the Everglades Club? And I say, absolutely. No problem at all. Okay. So (laughs) just wonderful. So I have gone on this show any number of times and said, I don't actually believe there are still clubs that exclude Jews or law firms or residential gated communities. I think that that kind of social exclusion is largely a thing of the past. They're urban legends. What I always want to say is people will come up to me and say, oh, no, 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 no. There's this club three towns over. And I always say, please bring me some evidence. Bring me one person who's had that an experience they'll talk about on the record. I want to write this article. I'm dying to write this article. And nobody ever does. I have to say, like in 2009 to be saying, yeah, I give my friends permission to bring their Jewish friend to the club on a, to get a guest pass for the day. <laughs> this may come closer than any other place in the country. And yet I still want to say, like, I don't know if you're at Connecticut College and President Kathy Bergeron wants to go snoring for money, so to speak, among the Gentiles of the Everglades. I don't know. This, I mean, this to is, me, this says more about the reality of like development and fundraising. It's like. Clearly, yeah. I guess everyone's in Palm Beach now. It's like, right. is this where your donor? I don't know. I, I love this idea that Sammy Davis Jr. committed this like dual offense. Right. Like, he was <laughs> he was declined membership as a black man and as a Jew. Also, like who would ever like their biggest their this? I mean, not letting Estee Lauder in like that's that's their loss. That is their. Well, that is the thing is at this point, I'm thinking and again, I was just down in Miami Beach where I met so many wonderful Jews and many wonderful non-Jews. And I'm thinking. What's the club at this point that says we are so happy just being here amongst our fellow Presbyterians and we are so no, flourishing in our there membership? Are, places are there really places that can Beach. afford yes. to keep out the Jews? Yes, because yes. Besides the Oscar Museum? I was about to say, probably <laughs> Not most the of the places Museum. that keep out the Jews are run by the Jews. You think, you think I, the Everglades I'd be shocked Club? if the Everglades Club I at this there, point isn't owned by like Moisha, by Israeli, by no, Israeli I think there are. I think there are places. It's like in like the Hamptons. Or you, there's just one place. It's, it's so like, what I, I, don't know. Know, I don't know that there's anyone who would go on the record and say it, but like, or there's like records of this anywhere, but I think there are places you're like, you just know, you just know, basically. This is a very, um, I'm not sure I want to stand by this take, but I'm going to say it because I'm feeling it right now and I have poor <laughs> impulse control. 
As somebody who reveres wasp culture, qua wasp culture, and, you know, there's so little of it left. There's so few people rocking. Save the wasps. Rocking those, you know, the the, the gin and tonic and the tweed jacket. Just and for them? The sort of inbreeding. Gin and tonic, tweed, and, and, in, inbreeding and inbreeding is just amazing. If, if there's a place, if there's a club that is really just a redoubt of old style waspiness. You want it. I kind of want to go visit and yeah. say, like, what are they talking about? What is that in 2023? What's the conversation like at the club where there are no people with any ethnic flavor? whatsoever. That just sounds horrible, but also kind of, I'm sort of... Are you saying it's like you, a place you'd like to go? I don't want to be a fly on the wall. I well, don't want to tear them down. I want to be a waiter. You want to no, be accepted. When nobody, when nobody knows your name and they're never glad they're you never came. Glad. <laughs> By the way, I do want to say that I just texted my, my family chat because um, mm-hmm. my parents are in Florida. And I said, is there a club in Palm Beach that doesn't allow Jews today? We're talking about it on the pod. And my dad said, yes, Everglades. <laughs> I so think, that's the one. I think Howie Butnick can crash those gates. <laughs> they should be so lucky. I, exactly. <laughs> Just for fun, let's send him. Be like, shalom. Yeah, shalom. FOHA application. <laughs> Maze. Like, what's that? Are you wearing a wire? Are you wearing a, a podcast wire? Maze Club <laughs> Are sandwich. Are you live streaming on the Unorthodox Podcast Facebook group, sir? <laughs> but I do want to say, you know, if you're Connecticut College and you're raising money down there and all of a sudden the Jews get together, this may be the biggest assemblage of Jews at Connecticut College. I bet they got more kids for this than for Yom Kippur services. I was about to say, the Jews sat on campus be like, if only there was some reason for a bunch of Jews to, to get, get together, together on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Occupying this building because someone has gone to a fundraiser in Florida. Shabbat Shalom, Connecticut College. Our guest today is someone whose name I'm apparently the only one among my colleagues who can actually pronounce, Ken Mazig. He is an Israeli writer, speaker, activist. You know him from Twitter, but now you also know him from a bookstore near you because he joins us to talk about his new book, The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto, as well as about what it's like to spend your life fighting the haters on social media and being a very publicly recognized Jew. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. We're a huge fan of yours. So to our listeners, uh, and there are probably three of them who are not already very big fans, kindly explain the magic of what you do as, I don't know, the defender of the Jewish people, champion, warrior, uh, hero, and how you came to do it. Wow. No, I'm not a defender of the Jewish people. I'm just a, I'm just a Jew. Um, <laughs> So I served for five years as a a humanitarian officer liaising with international organizations in the West Bank, in Hebron, Ramallah, and Jerusalem. And I saw that there was so much bias towards us, working with the UN, with the Red Cross, and all those organizations that were just plain lying about everything we were doing there. Uh, It was- The UN? The UN was About Israel? (laughs) Shocker. Shocked, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I've I've seen all this bias and I wanted to do something to change it. I reached out to a few American organizations. A few of them came and trained my soldiers on how to deal with biases and help us with Hasbara, classic Hasbara. And then I got involved with a few of them. I moved to Seattle, lived there for three years worked for a few pro-Israel organizations, started writing, and I saw that there was a lot of misunderstanding and people just don't really know the, the truth. They have their biases, they have their prejudice, 
I was trying to educate people, started speaking, started writing. And then I moved back to Israel, worked there um, doing social media. And three years ago, I've started a Tel Aviv Institute, TLVI, which is a, an organization that works with social media influencers, Jewish ones, for different backgrounds. We give them the tools to speak up about their Jewish identity online. Not the classical Jewish influencers you know, but people from different backgrounds. So I couldn't be a bigger fan, but I, I, it's important to me to start this, this conversation on a contentious note. Um, what if I said something like the following? Hey, man, I admire your commitment. I love what you're doing. Truly, the energy, the spirit is fantastic. But Hasbara is kind of dumb because, you know, there's no point in engaging these haters online. If someone wants to be so willfully ignorant and so hateful, all we could say, all we should say as Zionists, as Jews, as humans is, hey, man, fuck you. We don't care. Go have your opinions. Gegesunter hate. And we will just do our thing. We're not here to waste our time explaining ourselves to you because, you know, you can't talk to these haters. You've heard this argument probably 7,000 times from people much smarter than me. And what do you say to such arguments? Yeah, it comes. I mean, I, I hear this argument and I hear arguments saying that I'm not going strong enough and that I have to call them out for what they are because they're all Nazis <laughs> and they're only to be every person that criticizes Israel hates us, which I don't think is true either. I think there's a place in the middle where we all can live and realize that there is a problem and we can make a difference. And I'm not, you know, I'm a firm believer that whenever there's not a seat at the table, you just push yourself in. And, and I think it's also coming from my background, from growing up as a gay boy in the closet and um, Mizrahi Jew that will speak about more. All of this, I think, made me understand that life is complicated. People will not accept me as I am on the first first time. Some people won't. Some people will. And I just need to continue being myself. And, and I think that's what we're also doing with the Jewish identity, with Israel. It's about really advocating and showing who we are because we're fighting a campaign of dehumanization, like you're saying. And the best way to fight it is by humanizing us. To be specific, you have about 90,000 followers on Twitter and about 80,000 followers on Instagram. So you are you are big. And your Twitter bio says, I love being Jewish 10 times more than anyone hates me for it. I love that attitude, but it sounds like a lot of people hate you for it. And that's something that that you you get into in the book, all these ways in which people seem so bothered by you. And you seem perfectly nice. Why, why, why do people hate you? Where should we begin? There's so much... Um... Every part of my identity is making people uncomfortable, some people uncomfortable about some part. And I think that's that's something that I've just had to live with and, and accept. And that's why this quote about loving myself 10 times more um, than anyone hates me for it. It was actually on Times Square as well. Some organization put it up, which was amazing for me. Um, but I think it comes from knowing that people are going to not like you. And no matter, you know, you can't be everything for everyone and still be liked by everyone. You have to be true to who you are. And I feel like also living a lie or, or saying things that I don't believe in or taking a stand that I don't believe in would probably make me much more popular. I could be more radical and have more radical ideas. And those 80 to 90,000 followers will grow into 200 or a million. But I just don't believe in it. And I don't think it's I'm always thinking about what I say and what I do and what I stand for. How is it going to make a difference? To what extent do you think that attitude, which is very rare under the best circumstances, even rarer under the worst, uh, to what extent do you think this attitude has to do with growing up in the closet? Oh, a lot. I mean, growing up in the closet for many reasons, from growing up in a society that rejected things that are uh, Middle Eastern and Arab because we, we were in war with Arabs. And my identity was also tied to Arab identity. My grandmother still speaks Arabic to me. My grandmother from my mother's side is from Iraq and my grandparents on my father's side are from Tunisia. And, you know, this trauma that they went through, my grandmother watched horrific things happening to 
uh, or family or friends, um, or best friend being raped and killed in Baghdad in 1941. In the Farhud. In the Farhud, um, in those two days that most people don't even know about. And Will you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, the Farhud is our two days of uh, violent attacks against the Jews of Baghdad. Uh, people call it the Kristallnacht of this community. Uh, it was incited by Nazis, but I think it's very important because now in, in uh, academia, specifically Jewish academics, for some crazy reason, are trying to twist it and say, well, it wasn't Arabs, it was actually Nazis that did that. It wasn't Nazis, it was Nazis officers that were working with the king in Iraq, but they were the ones that incited it. The people that conducted those violent attacks against the Jews were Arabs. And, and in those two days, uh, hundreds of Jews were killed, thousands were injured, synagogues were burned, uh, glasses were shattered. It's, it was a terrible time. And, you know, when I was researching for my book, there's not enough written about that or about any of the history that I was trying to, to cover for my book. So I felt like I had to, I interviewed a bunch of professors and, that have been studying it and, and try to get as much information as I can. But, you know, they came with this trauma, and we were talking earlier before we started recording about the Gulf War. They came with this trauma from Iraq, came to Israel, thought that they were safe there, had to deal with this new country that was born that, to be fair, the, the idea was that there won't be any different identity, that it will all be one identity, Israeli, you won't be Ashkenazi or, or Mizrahi or Sephardi. But they suffered because this identity was not really fitted to them. They didn't speak Hebrew. They were rejected by the society. And then in the Gulf War, um, missiles came from Iraq and hit Ramat Gan, one of the highest population of Iraqi Jews in Israel. Um, so as if they're running away, the violence continues. Then with the Intifada. So all of this, I think, just created some, uh, it's not a dissonance, but just pressured my identity from all different sides. So I had to pretend to be not Arab, not speaking Arabic. I'm, I'm not an Arab because I can get into this conversation, but Mizrahim are not Arabs and I go into depth about it in my book. Um, but I had to hide that. I had to hide the fact that I'm gay because everyone in my neighborhood and everyone in school were using gay as a slur. But it's, I think all of this made me understand that, you know, People are not going to like who I am. And only when I started coming out, I first came out as a gay person. I feel like I came out um, in the army and I felt like I could tell my friends and my family who I am. That was challenging. But after doing that, I felt so so much pride and I walked with my chest up and, and felt very confident and, and at ease. And then I started speaking about being Mizrahi as well and took pride in this identity and, and my culture and listening to. I mean, I used to grow up thinking that all this music are Arsim and those people are not who I want to be. I want to be like the Europeans. I want to listen to classical music. I want to be that. And I think in the recent years, I've just came to to be proud of everything that I am. I love that. And now you've written a whole book about it. The book is called The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto. And I would love for you to talk about this it's a fantastic book. Tell us about what you're trying to do with the book and why you start the book in the way you do. Right. My book is about identity and it's not a memoir as much as it. I mean, I do speak about my history, but I'm not old enough or have done enough to write a memoir. So it's a manifesto. I, I'm speaking about really things that I believe in and, and where I think our community should go. And the book starts with Hating Chen. It's the whole scene in University College London in 2016, uh, where I came to speak and 300 students were breaking windows, trying to get to me and the students. We were locked in the room. 20 police officers had to come to rescue me while people are shouting, you know, get this criminal and try and get him. And I'm rushed out of campus. And it starts there because I think it's it was so amazing to see so many people being so angry with who you are. And it wasn't about what I was going to speak about. My talk is all about peace, coexistence, how we need to see each other as humanity, how Israelis and Palestinians should not be enemies. And that will start when we see each other as, as human and advocating for peace and advocating for two-state solution and advocating for LGBTQ rights. Like You would think that I'd be the poster <laughs> child for all of those uh, protesters, but they didn't even care what I was going to speak about. Just the fact that I was Israeli started it. And 
and and then I had to dive deep into it. And and what is it about me that besides being Israeli? Why are you the wrong kind of brown skinned gay man? <laughs> in other words, but yeah. spot on. Because otherwise, if I wasn't Israeli, if I wasn't Zionist, if I wasn't a Jew, like things would probably be much easier, and I would be, you know, featured in uh, in Time as the um, activist of the year because I'm a brown gay person that speaks about all these issues that we should care about as progressive people, but but I'm not there because I, I'm also Israeli and I'm a Zionist and I'm not going to, I mean, my family, Israel is a lifeline for my family. There is nowhere else for us to go. We can't, for most Jews, it doesn't matter if you're from Europe or from from the Middle East, the, our villages have been burnt. We, we can't go back to where our grandparents came from, which other people do have the privilege to go visit their culture and connect to it. You know, it's, and that's why Israel for me is not just an idea, it's also, you know, it's, uh, it's when people say that they're against the existence of Israel, it's a death threat for me. Even though I can live in London or I can live in America, I'm still, my home is in Israel. And then, yeah, I go into, uh, into the ways that people hate me. I speak about permanent activists from left and right that find me un- and what I say uncomfortable. And then I, uh, I'm going deeper into it. And I think that there's something about Mizrahim that really shatters a lot of the narrative around Israel, around Jews, of course, um, both from within our community, uh, but also outside of our community, both for right-wing and left-wing people that are addressing this region. Because you're not like a white colonizer yeah. <laughs> in this narrative that like we've created. Like the right. reality of Israel looks a lot like you. Yeah, majority of Israeli Jews today are Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, recent descent. All Jews started from the Middle East. And I say that in the book as well. We're all, we're all Mizrahim. We were all once Mizrahim. We had longest diaspora of any people, I think, in the world. But we all have this indigenous connection to the land of Israel. And indigeneity doesn't expire. You are indigenous to the place where you came from, as long as you maintain this connection to the land, which we do. We face Jerusalem uh, on Sukkot. We take four species and wave them to six directions of the wind. This is Native Americans do that all the time. Uh, we invite spirits into our home every Friday. That's something that Jews do with the angels of peace. We call them the angels of peace, but those, those are spirits. We keep a seat at a table on Passover for Elijah. That's a seat for our ancestor. The bodies of our ancestors are buried in this land. This is our land. And I think we also miss the whole narrative because we're we're looking at the Middle East as the, at the Arab world and thinking that they are a nation state and Israel is a colonizer and empire. It's not an empire. You recognize an empire by language, right? That's why I speak English. That's why so many countries speak it. Uh, Arabic is an imperial language because so many countries speak it. French, um, Portuguese. Hebrew is spoken in only one place. Israel is a nation state. Um, you mean Brooklyn? <laughs> maybe in New Jersey, I think. But empires are, you know, they're oppressing other communities, other minorities. And the Jews have been in the Middle East as an oppressed minority, oppressed indigenous minority. But only the Jews, you know, I had to uh, give the disclaimer that I'm not an Arab because people try to say, well, there's Arab Jews. We're not Arab Jews, just like you won't say Arab Copts or Arab Amazigh or Arab Yazidis because they have their own distinctive, unique identity as a religious minority. But Jews are the only one that are, I mean, the whole conversation around Israel is completely reversing the empire and nation-state narrative. And that's what really bothers me. I feel you're a much younger man than me, uh, but I'm going to say we here because I'm I'm just, you know, h- hanging on to your coattails here. Uh, since we grew up, I feel, since we were kids, I feel Israel has changed a lot and really for the better in its ability to recognize this profound truth that we are all in essence Mizrahi Jews. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about how the culture and just the atmosphere and the just the nation itself changed. Yeah, and I go Mizrahified, through, if you will. Mizrahified, I love that. Someone was um, 
in the book, I think I also speak about how someone was saying that there's a falafelization of the <laughs> of the Jewish cuisine. But it's interesting. I mean, the, today in Israel, every Israeli listens to Mizrahi music. That's the most popular music that you can hear. Every wedding, you'll have Mizrahi dancing and Mizrahi music. Uh, Omer Adam is the most successful artist in Israel. I go into it in the book as well, the, the idea that, you know, American Jews love Israel. And you ask them, why do you love Israel so much beside the Zionism and our connection? And they say, we love the food and we love the music and we love how direct people are and how warm they are and how there's all these things that they love about Israel, which are very Middle Eastern. And that's what I think the influence of Mizrahi Jews in Israel today. And Mati Friedman wrote that brilliantly in one of his articles on how the soul of the country is Mizrahi. And although it behaves like a Western democracy, it's still a Middle Eastern country and with Middle Eastern people. And I think Mizrahim are not, it's not that Mizrahim are the only one that partake in this culture. It's a culture that became part of the culture of Israel. Today, it's the Israeli cuisine is, is Mizrahi. And that's the other, I mean, every few months, the New York Times will publish an article saying that we stole this cuisine from Arab countries. Mm-hmm. It's just insane to me. You know, my grandparents, as I said, came with nothing to Israel. The only thing they had were their stories, but also they had recipes and they had a culture that they came with. And even that has been coming under assault in the West, which is insane to me. And that's something that I'm talking about as well. All right. So now we we, we want to let you go on a very positive note and we want you to share some Torah, some wisdom, some teaching, because a lot of us, I feel, have this moment. It's like, I see this on Twitter, my blood boys, what do I do? So tell us. What are the Ten Commandments, the Five Commandments, the Three Commandments of what do we do when we see crazy anti-Semitic, anti-Israel shit on Twitter? That's a really good question. And in those laboratories for influences, which I run with the Tel Aviv Institute, we actually have a whole session about when to respond to a bigot <laughs> um, on social media. And we speak about, first of all, like I think the rule of thumb generally 95% of the time is just not responding. They're not worth it. They're not worth your time. I don't think I ever got into an argument on Twitter, which ended with me saying, oh, yeah, that was a good one. Like I really right. I They well him. spent, so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Exactly. Today I changed your mind on social media. <laughs> Have yeah. you ever, by the way, I'm sorry, just out of curiosity, do you ever have a discussion and someone's like, oh, wow, I never knew this. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, all the time. There was this blogger from London, a black blogger, not Jewish, that posted some anti-Semitic stuff. And I reached out to her and I started speaking to her and we started meeting. And after like five meetings, the fifth meeting was us watching rabbi sex videos on, on YouTube. <laughs> she started, <laughs> she, that, that is traditionally fifth date, you know, <laughs> protocol. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then she just became, she, she didn't become like a Zionist, but she's definitely more aware of, of what That's she's amazing. saying. All right. So back, so back to the rules. Right. Back to the rules. So never engage. The 5% time that you do engage, either it's someone that has political power or any capital or power that, you know, a lot of followers and you want to highlight what they said, or you want to show a trend. So there's people like Ariel Gold from Code Pink. She's a vicious anti-Zionist. Uh, and I always use her because she's not very smart. And every time she says something, it's really amazing to show. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking if I had to choose between Mark Lamontiel, a professor that is really hiding his anti-Semitism so well, to Ariel Gold that is just saying stupid things, I would like for her to be the face of anti-Zionism. So I would say like engage in these cases, but otherwise don't engage. And, and when you're engaging, always try and be the kind person, lead with kindness, lead with positivity, try and speak about humanity. Don't speak about Israel and Palestine, speak about Israelis and Palestinians. Always try to humanize our side and people are going to see it and, and they will change their minds, I, I hope. And Mazi, God bless you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much for having Thanks me. For me. It was great. We 
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin, back with another episode of The Minion. The Minion is a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with Jewish atheists or non-believers about the ways in which Jewish life can be meaningful for Jews who don't believe in God. Here's some of what they had to say. I tend to identify as a Jewish non-believer. I avoid atheist because it sounds as dogmatic as anybody who touts God. But I don't know what the word God means and any definition I've heard doesn't ring true to me. So I don't go there and I stay in this space which is very undefined of non-belief. I identify somewhat as agnostic. Uh, which means the question of whether there is or is not a God is an irrelevant question. If there is a God or if there is not a God, our behavior, our choices are our own. And we know the kind of choices that are pro-social, that help people get along. Human beings create pain, pleasure, progress, or destruction. So my belief or non-belief is really I, I, I get very Jewish on this. It's about behavior rather than belief. I don't understand how there can be a Holocaust and six million Jews being murdered and there being a God. Language and storytelling is a human creation. And I think the idea that most people have about God is a story. I don't know how humans could have really figured out how we all got here. People were sitting around a fire and throwing out ideas of how we got here. And I think that that is the story that we all now believe is God. I wish we could all understand that there's no one way to do Jewish. And there's no one way to be Jewish. And I think if you identify as Jewish and call yourself Jewish, Dainu, <laughs> that should be enough. And. I would like to be, I feel like I am included in the Jewish community. I'd like to be included in the Jewish community. And I don't think that the fact that I am an atheist should have any effect on it at all. I hope you'll check out 
the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash Minion. box liel the first letter is uh, is right in your kitchen as my friend derek would say do you want to read it for us oh do i ever dear unorthodox i heard liel say that you unfortunately don't yet have glassware for your studio i sent a shipment of glassware to the tablet p.o box so keep a lookout for that in the gift package you can find two martini glasses because of course I got angled martini glasses because as neat and iconic as martini glasses are, the straight triangle design makes them easy to spill over. I also got you two rocks glasses. You have a corduroy rough, and a rabbi needs a canter, or in this case, a <laughs> decanter. Ah! I got you a matching decanter to go with your rocks glasses. L'chaim Arden. Oh, a my greater God. email and a greater gift. Has, has it arrived never, yet? Has, we're going to go to the, not we're go arrive, to the mailbox. But oh we would go to the post a, office and find a it. A live uh, unboxing and a taping and put it on, on the socials. And this is just amazing. Arden is an OG J. Crew member, an old time listener. This is what it is to have commitment to your podcast host. Yes, right? yes. Is when you sense that they don't have everything the they need. The proper stemware. The proper stemware. You get them the prop. You house. You get them housewarming gifts. That's really yeah, what that's it's all amazing. about. As a tribute, as a thank you, I think our next invented, created cocktail will be the Arden. The Arden. To be the Arden. The Arden soon. of Eden. Ooh, that's good. What's, I think it should have like leaves and stuff in there. Right. There should apple, be like a bunny, apple. a bunny topiary. Oh yes, no fig, fig. <laughs> it wasn't correct. It was a fig. It's a fig. Okay, this is amazing. This one doesn't have a gift with it, but it has a gift in the sense of uh, just an amazing story. This comes from Zach Weinstein. He says, I saw a bumper sticker on a car that said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And I was so confused. I have to know your thoughts on this. It must refer to Jesus, but they're emphasizing his Judaism or that he's a carpenter. Or is it just some <laughs> carpenter whose boss happens to be Jewish? <sighs> anyway, I, I have a lot of We've thoughts. We've all seen this bumper sticker, No, right? have you? Oh, you've never seen it? I have Leo. seen it. Wait, I've seen what? it. Oh, it's an old-timey And, and I want to make hippie. one that says, it's an and, old and my boss is his dad. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. It's an old-timey 60s, 70s, hippie Jesus movement bumper sticker. It's saying, like, I'm old school. I go back to the roots. My boss is just this simple carpenter from uh, from Bethlehem. It's, yeah, it's and emphasizing his his desert roots, his Jewish roots. And his, it's like, my boss is Jesus. My boss. It's saying, my is boss my is Jesus. And by the way, I, you know, my... My grandfather, Walter, was, of course, a Jewish carpenter. So when I first read this, when I was maybe six or seven years old, and I saw You're this like, bumper sticker, can I, have that? I thought, yeah. wait a second. Wait, works is, for- is grandpa his boss? <laughs> Does he have <laughs> grandpa employees? God? Is son of God? I would say, though, I love this formulation because whenever anyone asks me what I do for a living, I always say I work full time for Hashem. <laughs> Does that have good benefits? Uh, <laughs> yes, but the performance review one day a year is really intense. Really grueling. Yeah. Really, but really once grueling. you make it through, the spread's great. The answer, Zach, is yes. It's a Christian bumper sticker. Can we get one? It's we. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amazed that anyone can get. I presume. Let's call Zach 30 years old. I'm amazed he could get this far in life without having seen this bumper sticker. Maybe they're not as ubiquitous as they used to be. Or maybe he lives in like Borough Park. Guys, you know what we need, J. Crew? We need some Jewish bumper stickers. We don't do bumper stickers much, do we? Well, we don't do it because it it like it lowers the value of the car. It, it lowers the resale value. We, we and, never... and you know us Jews. <laughs> we don't pay retail and we right. care about resale value. I would like people to write to us 
at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us Wait. at 914-570-4869. We will print the bumper sticker if it's good enough. I wanted to say my boss is a Jewish podcaster. <laughs> there you go. Write to us about anything. Write to us about Hollywood and the Jews. Write to us about Connecticut College. Let us know if you know a club that's truly restricted. But most important, what should a Jewish bumper oh sticker say? Quinn now has Jewish bumper stickers on her Google images. What does it say? Quinn pulled up Jesus saves, but Jews invest. <laughs> Gabriel Said Reynolds is an old, dear friend of mine. I love him not only for the, the few years that we spent together in graduate school 20 years ago, but also because he is also a fellow uh, native of the I-91 corridor. West Hartford, Connecticut's own Gabriel Said Reynolds is one of the great scholars of the Quran and Islam. He's a YouTube star. He's a professor at Notre Dame. He joined me to talk about his work on the Quran, his work on YouTube, and his work on making Islam more accessible to public audiences. Gabriel Said Reynolds, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Mark. If I'm not mistaken, you are a Roman Catholic who studies Islam. Tell me and our listeners, how did this become your bag, man? <laughs> My mother grew up in Boston, but she was born from a Syrian-American family. The Arab-Syrian culture wasn't really passed down, so she didn't speak Arabic. She knew some cuss words, and she knows how to cook uh, Syrian food. And so remnants of our heritage were passed down to me. So that was really the beginning of it. And then I went to Columbia undergrad and uh, started studying Arabic in Middle Eastern studies and started going traveling in the summers of the Middle East. First country I went to was Jordan and immediately getting out of the airport. And it was sort of well-timed for the call to prayer, hearing you know these loudspeakers announcing the call to prayer and seeing just the public nature of Islam really intrigued me. And yeah, that was the beginning. So you've been teaching at Notre Dame now, what, 20 years? Yeah. You've written pretty widely about the relationships between the Quran and the Old and New Testaments or the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and, you know, non-Muslim biblical literature. Now you're, you're YouTubing. The channel is called Exploring the Quran and the Bible. One of the questions that you address in a number of the videos is this question of how faithful a Muslim should be or any person should be to translate the Quran. This does seem to be a more fraught thing in Islam what in Judaism we call the fences around fences around the Torah. You know, who gets who gets to touch it metaphorically or literally? Obviously, there have been great uproars over who gets to depict the Prophet Muhammad in visually. This is, I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean this in a judgy way, this is really touchy stuff for Muslims in a way that it is not politicized and touchy for Jews. It's not to say Jews don't have opinions on it. We're not supposed to be going around making graven images. Obviously, we invented the prohibition against it, but we don't presume that Christians can't translate our stuff. They've been translating our stuff for 2,000 years. What is the state of thinking within the Muslim world and within the scholarly world, and, and of course there's crossover between the two, on what one has to bring to the Quran to translate it? Do you have to be a believer? Do you have to be a Muslim? What are the rules? What's the state of play? Yeah, I think there's great division over this question. I think you're absolutely right that it's extremely contentious, gets mixed up with all sorts of other questions. It's very complicated even to sort out for some scholars approaching chronic studies, you sort of have to start with the assumption that there's a long legacy of anti-Islamic or Islamophobic sort of antagonism to Muhammad and Quran. That's the legacy of Western studies of Islam. And so there's something problematic necessarily 
This gets mixed up sometimes with uh, language about colonialism, Orientalism, which we could speak about more. Your listeners will know Edward Said's, maybe Edward Said's book, Orientalism, which had a whole aftermath to it. So there's all sorts of things going on there. But there is division, though, because, for example, the study Quran, the HarperCollins study Quran, which is, you know, extremely, extremely influential, has sold very, very well and has sort of made a place for itself in the market of Quran translations. That was a project explicitly for Muslim believers. Non-Muslims were were not invited to participate. It's explicit in the introduction. And, you know, there are other Muslims who would say, listen, when you translate the Quran, you necessarily have to take a stand on theological questions. For example, anthropomorphisms and language about God. So can God be seen as having a hand or sitting down or the things that the Quran seems to say about him? Or in a maybe even more complicated question is the problem of God and his responsibility for evil in the world. So basically, see Odyssey. So so whenever you translate, you're, you're dealing with theological questions, and they would say, does it make sense for a non-Muslim to sort of resolve those questions on behalf of the Quran? That That's the kind of language I hear from people who would say that only Muslims should be translating the Quran. But then there are other Muslims who would say, listen, when non-Muslim does it, they're basically reading the Quran as literature And if they know Arabic and have a reasonable sense of the grammar and the particularities of the Quran, then what the heck? I mean, of course they could, they can do it. What do you think? I mean, as a non-Muslim, I'm definitely in the latter camp. I think people should be clear about their predispositions in regard to the text when they're translating it. But, you know, in fact, what's needed to translate the Quran above all is good philological insight. And I actually think, I mean, my whole sort of career has been premised on the notion that you need to know the Bible and Jewish and Christian literature of late antiquity to properly translate the Quran. So I think there's a problem for those who will only engage with Islamic literature. So I would be actually a little bit contentious about that. Yeah. You are a Christian scholar at a Christian school who's teaching about Islam. Are you finding that the resistance to Islam and Islamic culture and Arab culture are as strong as they were, say, right after 9-11? Have things moderated? How much Islamophobia do you confront with your students, with your peers, with your public audience? So I would say that there's a low-key lack of understanding of Islam that's present. I wouldn't call it Islamophobia because the more sort of noticeable uh, dispositions or perspectives that my students have on Islam is positive. So like the general vibe, is eagerness to understand Islam and Muslims. At least a typical Notre Dame student is especially eager, anxious to show that they have the right sort of like understanding of the other. I mean, that's in the campus culture at Notre Dame. I think it's in the campus culture at most places. Sure. But at the same time, I think there is what I call the low-key difficulty of understanding a profoundly religious culture. So, I mean, most students at Notre Dame, even if it's a Catholic place, they're not extremely religious. I mean, they're, they like wear their Catholicism lightly. And so to think that people fasting on Ramadan or dressing modestly with or without the headscarf or hijab, or that your ideas about, especially about sex and sexuality would be framed by your received scripture or revelation. These are all things that our students, they do, they do struggle with. So I think there's it's sort of there in a low-key way that's more like a lack of understanding of religious cultures generally. I would say that's the most salient thing. Okay, so for one of our listeners who presume that they're an engaged Jew who is eager, like your students, to know more about Islam, aside from going to your YouTube channel, Exploring the Quran and the Bible, what else could they do? Is there a book? 
Is there a course? Is there a journey? Is there a practice they could have that would help acclimate them to Islam? So, yeah, there's all of that. I mean, I would start by saying everyone should learn about Islam. Jews and Gentiles, we should, we should all learn about Islam. It's incredibly important to the world we live in. I mean, people say technically there are more Christians in the world than Muslims, but that's kind of BS, pardon the phrase, because there's the percentage of practice among Muslims is so much higher worldwide than it is among Christians. So really, it's the largest religion in the world. And it's also probably the fastest growing religion. So the world, yeah, I mean, in many places, Islam is growing significantly. And one of those places is the U.S. Muslims are probably about 2% of the country, so it's maybe 7 million. But they're also the fastest growing religion in the U.S. So visiting a mosque is always a great idea. Uh, I think there are close to 3,000 mosques in the U.S. now, some, somewhere around there. And so most, most larger communities have a mosque. And most mosques are eager to welcome people to Friday prayer. They usually have a separate section for them, and they're usually eager. You probably get some dawah, which is the word for Muslim evangelism. Like usually they take that opportunity to try to share the beauty of Islam, invite people to come back, stuff like that. I mean, it's a highly evangelical, if I can use that phrase, culture in American Islam. There's some books I would suggest as well. I mean, Dan Brown has a good introduction to Islam generally. Um, I actually think that it's a good idea to read the Quran, but I would do it with a, a book that has good annotations. My favorite translation is uh, Arthur Droge, D-R-O-G-E. And then, um, yeah, I mean, some of my favorite authors among Muslims would include people like Mustafa Akil, who's written a couple of books. The most recent is called Reopening Muslim Minds. But he's also written, written earlier books which address Islam more generally, also a book about the Muslim Jesus. There's a scholar named Mustansir Mir, who's written on the Quran, M-I-R, who really is good on the literary qualities of the Quran. And then there's a book that's been republished called Major Themes of the Quran by Fazlur Rahman, who was at the University of Chicago, originally for Pakistan, with an introduction by Ibrahim Musa. So those, those would be some places to start. So finally, whenever we have a Gentile of the Week on, we always create a space for you to ask any questions you might have about Judaism or Jewish culture. Is there anything that's been plaguing you that you've been wondering about Jews in America or elsewhere that I could try to tackle for you? You don't have to have one, but this is your chance. So, I mean, I think the first question would be about Hebrew and Yiddish and like the general American-Jewish relationship to those two languages or in regard to Hebrew, even Reformed Jews, what is the feeling about Hebrew? Is, there, is this God's language and it's still super important? And then Yiddish too, is, this, is there an idea that like, well, Yiddish is, is just a cool language, it's part of our heritage and you're, you're a cooler Jew if you can speak some Yiddish. Okay, so uh, really delighted to take this one. It actually opens up a lot of interesting questions. It's not as simple as you might think, as one might think. I'll try to do this in, let's say, two to three minutes. You know, historically, Hebrew, of course, is the language in which, for the most part, you know, our ancient scripture was written in, and it was still, and it was used then in addition to Aramaic and others, but used in scripture going forward. So if you're reading, you know, Talmud, Maimonides, Rashi, et cetera, even if they wrote in other languages, they quote from Hebrew, they know Hebrew. You always had to know Hebrew to do to do scriptural work. Um, and then, of course, there's this extraordinary story of how it was rebirthed as a contemporary modern language, really the only or certainly the, the biggest revitalization or recreation of a language from as a spoken language from scratch in the history of the world, I think. There are other attempts to do it, but none has created so many millions of native speakers um, in so short a time with the, you know, the birth of the state of Israel and before that, you know, starting in the, in the 1800s. In America, I would say, you know, there is, there has been a, the reform movement used to be almost all English and they have 
uh, especially in the post-war era and and especially with so much intercourse with Israel and also so many Hebrew school teachers and teachers coming from Israel to teach in elementary schools and so forth and summer camps, there has been a real reinfusion of Hebrew even into Reform liturgy. So if you go and look at the, the prayer books that they use in many Reform temples now, there's a lot of Hebrew and it's transliterated and so forth and so on. You know, Hebrew's back and it, people are proud to know it. It's not a requirement, but, you know, if you go to Hebrew school, you'll learn the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet. And the, the idea is to know some words in Hebrew is good. Yiddish, which was never a liturgical language in the same way, although there's a literature in it and some of the literature is religious, um, was, you know, the, the, the language of many Ashkenazi Jews who would pass through German-speaking lands. And that's the, that's the ancestry of the majority of American Jews. So it's stuff that our great-grandparents, you know, I would say grandparents, but increasingly great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents spoke. It is cool to know it. And there is, you know, many Hasidim never stopped speaking it. So there are native Yiddish speakers who tend to be in ultra-Orthodox and Hasidic communities. And there are Hasidic newspapers publishing daily in Brooklyn, you know, for people who, for whom that's their authentic autochthonous language, but they tend to be very, very religious. And then the interesting thing and I'll just conclude with this because I could go on forever and I'm not the major scholar on this by any means. But the interesting thing is that there are, there's a big reclamation of Yiddish among secular, and I would say not to be reductive, but left-wing, secular and left-wing Jews in America who see Yiddish as a kind of pacific and non-Zionist alternative to Hebrew, like an, a, a Jewish, an authentically Jewish language that doesn't have the baggage of Israel. So you'll see it being very, very popular in sort of artistic and left-wing and queer communities. And, and they have helped bring it back to and reinfuse non-Orthodox Jewish life with Yiddish. So that's been pretty cool. So yeah, they're both big. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. And then next time we can talk about Ladino, which is the ancestrally Sephardic Judeo-Spanish language that also is having a bit of a renaissance and, and we covered on our show recently. Gabriel Reynolds, if people want more of your stuff, where can they go? Well, uh, you, you've already uh, plugged. I'm very grateful for that. The YouTube, which is Exploring the Quran and the Bible. Uh, I have a book that's on the Quran or God in the Quran in particular called Allah, God in the Quran. So they can find that anywhere they'd like to buy books. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, thank you for being our Dental of the Week. Thank you so much, Mark. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I do have a mazel tov to my friend, tablet contributor, and just all around awesome human and writer, Lee McMullen Abramson. Her debut novel is out today. It's called A Likely Story. It is amazing. We'll get her on at some point. You, should, you all should read it. It's fantastic. Congratulations. Mazel tov to Lee. I'm going to stay uh, within the general realm of the arts and wish a very, very hearty mazel tov to my own Lily Bessie, who this week is debuting, has her big stage debut in Disney's The Little Mermaid at her middle school. She plays a variety of amazing roles. I am so excited to see her perform live. And if we're honest, just as excited to never have to hear Under the Sea <laughs> ever again after this week. Uh, my mazel tov is to Abby Myers, who is a shooting guard for the University of Maryland Terrapins. She's going to take them to greatness in the NCAA women's basketball competition. She is a top Jewish shooting guard of the week, and we're wishing her all the best, lots of luck. And also to somebody who's already killed it, who's already slain this past week, Rowan the bar mitzvah boy at Temple Beth Shalom in Miami Beach, who wow, was there for yes, the Kabbalah Rowan. Shabbat, where I gave the Devar Torah, who was there the next day. He had an afternoon service. People were talking about how great this party was going to be for miles around. But but I, I, I heard that he was a really well-prepared, 
thoughtful kid who took it really, really seriously. And so a mazel tov to Rowan's whole family. Baruch Hashem. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, same moi, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We are produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jerome Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag. That includes the corduroy unorthodox hat of which much was said this week at tabletstudios.com. The episode art is by Esther Werdiger. The theme music is by Golem. And the mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. If you want to send us stemware, cutlery, uh, other things to make our abode a little more... Um, dwellable. You can send them to P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Samuel L. Spector, or as I call him, Shmuley, at Congregation Kolami in Salt Lake City, Utah. By the way, Salt Lake City, serious Jewish scene. I've been there. Love Utah Jews. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>